This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends, and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. This is episode 285, entitled Exploring the Triad in Hebrews 9.14. Before we begin with our episode for this week, I want to really encourage you to subscribe to our YouTube channel if you have not done so already. It's youtube.com slash biblicalunitarianpodcast. We're really trying to push that particular form of media to help get the message of the one true God and the human Son Jesus out for people to see and to hear so they can also experience these very important truths. So please go subscribe over there if you have not done so already. And I wish to thank and offer my appreciation to those persons who have already subscribed to our YouTube channel. So we're continuing in our study that is looking at these triadic passages within the New Testament. Triadic passages are what I am calling passages that talk about God, Jesus, and the Spirit. Sometimes it's the Father, Jesus, and the Spirit, and the three are collected in a single phrase or in a single sentence or in the midst of a couple of sentences. And often people will point to these passages and they will say, look, there's some clear evidence of the doctrine of the Trinity within the New Testament. They see the Father, Son, and the Spirit together, and they say, boom, that's proof that the doctrine of the Trinity was believed by early Christians, and it was taught by early Christians, particularly within the New Testament. Now, many of my listeners are not convinced by simply seeing the Father, Son, and the Spirit mentioned together in a single verse, that that actually is what the councils of Nicaea and Chalcedon were actually teaching in the 4th and 5th century church councils. In fact, we've looked at a variety of these triadic passages, and we've yet to see any evidence, any evidence at all, that even comes close to the language that those church councils use regarding the fact that there is supposedly one God who exists in three distinct conscious persons that are each co-equal, co-eternal, and co-essential. In this week's episode, we'll look at the book of Hebrews and find yet another triadic passage, and our goal is to look at all the triadic passages of the New Testament to see if any of them actually do give evidence of the doctrine of the Trinity, and if they don't, what actually do they say? What is the purpose of these triadic passages? So, what does the book of Hebrews have to say about God, Jesus, and the Spirit. Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is looking at the triad within the book of Hebrews. Our passage is actually Hebrews 9 verse 14, but that's at the end of a sentence that has already begun in verse 13. So we'll read verses 13 and 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those, have been defiled 
sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who, through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That's Hebrews 9, verses 13 through 14. It's kind of a long, run-on sentence with a lot of stuff that's involved in it. But the point there is that if the blood of goats and bulls were able to give a sanctifying effect for the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ cleanse your conscience of dead works so that you can serve the living God? So in this passage you could see that God, the Son, and the Spirit are all listed together in the same verse. Is this evidence for the doctrine of the Trinity? Even implicitly, could you read between the lines and just guess that maybe, possibly, that's what's being spoken of here? Well, the answer to that is, no, you, you really can't do that with any sort of honesty. Remember that the Trinity teaches that the one God consists of the Father, Son, and Spirit. The fact that our verse talks about God mentioned among the Son and the Spirit means that these three cannot refer to the Trinity. If the Trinity is the Father, Son, and the Spirit making up the one God, how can the one God here be set alongside the Son? That, of course, means that the one God is not the triune God. That God seems to be the Father alone. Based on this passage, what can we say about God? Well, God here, which actually has the definite article, the God, it's used in the dative, Totheo, this God is the recipient of the sacrificial offering of Jesus. Jesus offered himself to the God. And not only is God the recipient of sacrifices, he is the recipient of service slash worship, coming from the Greek verb latrevo, which is a pretty rare verb, and it's the sort of worship that is only used in an approving way within the New Testament, with the Father as the object. The Spirit and the Son are never the objects of latrevo. This God in our passage is also called the living God, presumably because he is immortal. The living God cannot die. That's why he is living. He is always living. Christ, on the other hand, according to our passage, did, in fact, die. Christ offered himself in the same manner that goats and bulls and heifers were sacrificed. That means that Christ completely died, 100% died. No suggestion that he has two natures and that only the human part died, but the God part did not die. That's not what is being said here. He offered himself. Jesus here is actually making this self-offering, and he does so voluntarily. There's no indication here that God sacrificed Jesus or that Jesus was some unwilling participant in this sacrificial offering. No, the passage says that Jesus offered himself completely. He offered himself to God, and God accepted this offering for the cleansing of the conscience of the people of God. What about the Spirit? Well, the Spirit here is actually called the Eternal Spirit. 
not a common way that the Spirit is referred to within the biblical text, but here it is called the Eternal Spirit. Why is it called the Eternal Spirit? Well, presumably because the Spirit is the extended presence and power of the living God. And if God lives forever, then his Spirit naturally also lives forever. Thereby, the Spirit is eternal. The Spirit, according to our passage, was the means through which Jesus offered himself to God. Nothing is said about the Spirit here that would indicate that it's a separate, conscious person alongside God. So we don't have any evidence pointing towards the doctrine of the Trinity or even hinting at the doctrine of the Trinity. In fact, we have quite a bit of data here that is incompatible with the doctrine of the Trinity. So what other clues about God, Jesus, and the Spirit might we gather from exploring the book of Hebrews as a whole, thereby allowing us to place our passage, Hebrews 9.14, within its literary context? That will move us to our second point. Point number two, what Hebrews teaches about God. Well, the opening verse, the opening sentence, speaks about God as the subject. It says that God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son. It's Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. So, long ago, God would speak in the prophets to the fathers, that is, to the Jewish ancestors. And after God did that long ago, now, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son. So this is what God does. God communicates by speaking through qualified agents, qualified human agents. God will speak through the prophets. That's what he did long ago. But in these last days, God has spoken in his Son. And of course, if God is speaking in his Son, then that means that God, by definition, is the Father. We can also see that God being described with singular verbs and singular pronouns indicates that this God is a single person, not two or three persons. The God, according to the book of Hebrews, is not triune. A little bit later in chapter 1, we have a quote from Psalm 45. And at the end of that particular quote, it says that you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness, therefore God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9. So God here is, of course, the God of the one who is anointed, the God of the Messiah. God is, of course, the one who anointed the Messiah. That's because the Messiah means the one who is anointed, the anointed king. Who is the one who anointed the anointed one? Well, that person, of course, is God. And that God is, of course, the God of the Anointed One. So the Anointed One, of course, is Jesus, but Jesus has a God. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 4, we get some indication that God is the creator of all things. This passage says, Every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 4. 
This, of course, indicates that God is the builder, the creator, the one who prepares all things. Since we've already seen that God is a single person and someone distinguished from Jesus and the one who has a son, this would mean that the Father is the builder of all things. In chapter 5, verse 1, we learn a little bit more. This passage says that every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1. So here we can see that God operates through high priest, and these high priests are taken from among humanity. So God is not his own high priest. The high priest functions as a mediating figure who mediates the forgiveness and holiness of the one true God to his people. And this is done through the offering of sacrifices and through the bringing of gifts in order that sin could be dealt with. So the high priest is a mediator between God and humanity. There's no indication here that the high priest is God himself. The high priest is a human being. And then in chapter 6, verse 13, it says that when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. Now, typically, when someone is going to make an oath, they have to do it in the presence of witnesses. But the point here is that God had no one else around him to whom he could swear. He could not swear by anyone greater than himself. And so he had to swear by himself. This, of course, indicates that God is a single person. He swore by himself. We have the singular verb and the singular pronoun. God is one person. It's not the Father swearing by the preexistent Son and Spirit that is a person. It's not the three persons that are swearing by themselves. No, it's God, a single person, the Father alone, who swore by himself. There's a Unitarian God who is swearing by his own self, proving that he is one single undivided person. What about the Son? This moves us to our third point, point number three, what Hebrews teaches about the Son. In chapter 1, verse 2, we can learn a little bit more about the Son in whom the true God spoke in these last days. The passage goes on, and it says that in these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. So, God has appointed Jesus to be the heir of all things, meaning that Jesus has authority over all things. This is something that's already taken place. Jesus is already the heir of all things. So this is not a mere man or a mere human being. He has all things placed under his feet. We talked about the quotation of Psalm 45, where we read the second half of that quotation, but the first half is in Hebrews chapter 1.8. And this passage, according to Hebrews 1.8, says, Of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. God has shared the title God 
with the Son. And this is done in the manner that we can see in Psalm 45, to where the true God shares the title God with the Davidic king, likely Solomon. So Jesus is highly empowered. Of course, he's been appointed as the heir of all things, so he shares in God's dominion, and he also shares in God's title, because God has authorized Jesus to operate within the sphere of this prerogative. But this doesn't mean that Jesus is the true God. It means that he has this title, and of course, the passage in Hebrews 1 verse 9 indicates that God, the true God, the one who anointed Jesus, is still the God of Jesus. So Jesus is highly exalted. There is a high human Christology that's taking place here, but Jesus, of course, still has a God. How do we know that Jesus is a member of the human race? Well, Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 14 tells us that it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 14. The passage says it's evident, it's clear, it's absolutely obvious that our Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, descended from Judah, the tribe of Judah. This, of course, makes Jesus an Israelite, means that he is also a Jew, means he's a human being, a member of the human race, a bona fide member of flesh and blood. He's a biological, lineal descendant from Judah. He's not some sort of pre-existent being. He is the human descendant from Judah. And the text says it is evident, it's clear, it's obvious. There is no uncertainty involved with this fact. Because the Jewish Messiah had to be a descendant of Judah. Because Judah was promised that one of his descendants would occupy the throne. A little bit later in chapter 9, it says that Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. So Jesus, Jesus Christ, has entered into the holy place, namely heaven, the heavenly holy place, and in doing so, he, on behalf of us, functioning as a mediator, is now in the presence of God. So Jesus in heaven is in the presence of God. This is not the sort of thing that you would say if Jesus himself was the true God. Are you in your own presence? That doesn't make any sense. Jesus is in the presence of God for us on our behalf. We would like to be in the presence of God, but Jesus as our mediator is in the presence of God for us. So Jesus is distinguished from God, and he functions as the high priest, who is the mediator on behalf of God's people. And, of course, the fact that Jesus is in heaven indicates the influence of Psalm 110, verse 1, which is regularly quoted throughout the book of Hebrews. But one place in particular is in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, which says, He, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all, sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews 10, verse 12. So Jesus is at God's right hand. Again, 
making it clear that cheese is distinguished from God. He's not confused with God. They are not collapsed into a single being. And Jesus is at God's right hand, meaning he has been highly exalted to that position, but it's also a position that is subordinate to the true God. So that's enough about God and about Jesus. What about the Spirit? This moves us to our fourth point. Point number four, what Hebrews teaches about the Spirit. Surprisingly, the noun spirit in Greek, pneuma, is quite rare in the book of Hebrews. So we don't have a lot of evidence to go on. So let's look at what we actually can say about the spirit. In chapter 2, starting in verse 3, the author tells us, How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both with signs and wonders, and by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. That's Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. So, according to the will of God, God is able to testify about this great salvation through the work of the Spirit. And what does the Spirit do? Well, it brings about signs, wonders, miracles, a variety of gifts. And this is what God is doing according to his own will. So God is extending his power and his presence through the Spirit, working in the lives of those people who have heard the gospel, they have received salvation, and the Spirit is operating within their midst. Now, in chapter 3, verse 7, we have the Holy Spirit speaking on behalf of Scripture. This passage says, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice. And what's going on here is that we have a quotation from Psalm 95. And although most of the Psalms within the book of Psalms have some sort of author or some sort of uh, attribution that the psalm is given to a particular person or for a particular person or on behalf of a particular person. Psalm 95 does not have an author attributed to it. It's an unattributed psalm. So the author of the book of Hebrews will say that the Holy Spirit is the speaker in this particular psalm. So it's not much to go on, but it tells us something about the way the Spirit operates. The Spirit is, of course, the voice of God operating throughout the scriptures of Israel. In chapter 6, verse 4, we learn a little bit more about how the Spirit functions in the lives of believers. This passage says, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. So the Spirit here is something that believers partake in. It's called the heavenly gift. It's part of the tasting of the good word of God. That, of course, is the gospel message. And those who partake of the Holy Spirit actually taste the powers of the age to come. So the Spirit 
helps to demonstrate what the age to come is going to look like and be like. But it doesn't mean that these people are already going to be in the age to come because some people can taste of these things and partake of the spirit and experience the powers of the age to come. But if they fall away, then they cannot be renewed unto repentance. But the point here is that the spirit is involved in experiencing the powers of the age to come. And of course, it is a gift from the heavenly God. And lastly, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 15, we can see the Spirit continuing to speak through Scripture. This passage says, And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. It's Hebrews chapter 10, verses 15 through 16. Now the Lord in this passage in this Old Testament text, is Yahweh himself, the personal name of God. Yahweh, we've seen, is a single person. We can see, even in this quotation, Yahweh is the I, the one who is going to make with them a covenant, and the one who speaks with singular verbs. But Yahweh himself is operating through the Spirit. The Spirit is not as I'm trying to point out, a separate person alongside Yahweh, the Spirit is just the way that God, by extension, operates in the midst of God's people. The Spirit can make this testimony because the Spirit is the extension of Yahweh himself, not a conscious person alongside Yahweh. We've already seen that God is a single person, the Father alone, and the Spirit is the Father's own Spirit, the extension of the Father's presence and power in the attempt to make God accessible to his people. So in conclusion, what have we seen about God, Jesus, and the Spirit within the book of Hebrews? Well, God is the God of Jesus. God has exalted Jesus to his right hand, and God has empowered Jesus to be in authority over all things. God is a single person, and we've seen that God is the Father alone, being defined with singular pronouns and singular verbs. God has worked through high priest in order to mediate his forgiveness and holiness to the people. And we've seen that God is the object of sacrifices and worship. What about Jesus? Well, Jesus is the Son of God. The Son of God who offered himself unto God. And of course, if Jesus offered himself, this means that Jesus was mortal. The book of Hebrews regularly distinguishes Jesus from the God. We've seen that God in these last days has spoken through the Son in a similar manner to the way in which God spoke through the prophets to the fathers. Jesus the Son bears the prerogative of having the title God, although it's clear that Jesus has a God above him, the God who has anointed Jesus. Jesus is a human being, a lineal biological descendant from Judah which makes Jesus an Israelite and a Jew. Jesus is now at the right hand of God, and he is in the presence of God on behalf of God's people. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the extended power and presence of the true God, namely the extended power of Yahweh himself. The Spirit speaks forth scripture, particularly when there is no given author. 
The Spirit produces miracles and gifts according to the will of God. Believers partake in the Spirit, resulting in the evidence of the powers of the age to come. So, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, the passage that talks about God, Jesus and the Spirit, is not a reference to the triune God. It's actually incompatible with the doctrine of the Trinity. It indicates instead that the true God is distinguished from Jesus, the Son of God who died. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Join us next week as we continue exploring these triadic passages in the New Testament, the passages that talk about God, Jesus, and the Spirit. Next week, we'll look closely at the triad in 1 Peter chapter 1. Please look forward to our next episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we aim to promote the sound truths about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. You can support us for free by subscribing on iTunes and YouTube, by giving us an honest review online, and by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends. If you'd like to offer a donation, please check out the episode's description for a PayPal link. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care.